Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Dr. Sleep, Part 4, Roof o the World, and Until You Sleep. Let's start the show! Dan Torrance and Billy Freeman head west to the former site of the Overlook, where they implement their plan to destroy the True Knot, with Abra's help from New Hampshire. They are successful as Dan overcomes both literal and figurative demons. In an epilogue, Dan celebrates his 15 years of sobriety by revealing his lowest moment. Dan mentors Abra on her 15th birthday as she comes to terms with her powers. The book ends with Dr. Sleep helping a nemesis pass over painlessly. A nemesis, you say? Kind of elevating that guy's role in Dan's life. Yeah, all right. (laughs) A minor annoyance. Nevertheless, Sean, life is a wheel. So I've been told. Yeah. Multiple times by King in this book. That's because life is a wheel. And its only job was to turn, and it always comes back to where it starts. I've heard that somewhere else, perhaps in the Dark Tower? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and King calls that out enough that it seemed like an important piece and maybe a theme of the story. I wanted to delve into that and think about it a little bit. And I did see a couple of places where we saw this idea of uh, the wheel turning. And one of those is that in the course of this book, Dan has returned to the state of his birth. We assume he was born in New Hampshire, where his parents met and where Jack was at the private school teaching. And Dan, after going to Colorado during The Shining, and then bouncing around the country as a transient, ends up back here in New Hampshire. And that is another way in which the wheel always comes back to where it had started. Another return for Dan, another spin of the wheel, if you will, is when he goes back to the Overlook, a place that he has avoided. He's avoided even looking at mountains in general, let alone the mountains where the Overlooks once stood. And he goes right back to where the hotel once stood and where his family was sort of responsible for burning it to the ground. I would say more than sort of. Definitely (laughs) responsible. The instigators of, the primary culprits. Well, they didn't like deliberately burn it down. It was kind of, they just let it happen. Yes. One other way in which we see this wheel turn is that Dan reflects about his childhood nickname, Doc, which both his parents and Dick Halloran called him in The Shining. Mm -hmm. And then he gets called Doc again by the folks in AA, but then also as a result of his role as Dr. Sleep at the old age home where he passes people on and that nomenclature sticks to him, that Doc. Yeah, I dig that. I I like that. He earns the nickname Doc two times for two reasons with two meanings, but it's still the same nickname. Yeah. 
And it's a weird one too, because he's very young in the shining and doc is not one that you would necessarily think of calling a young boy. And even in this book, he's not an old man by any stretch of the imagination. And he's not a doctor. So to call him doc is sort of weird. Yeah, but it still happens. And while we're talking about wheels, we can kind of think of how Dan is at least attempting to break the wheel Mm. to stop the repetition of certain cycles by helping Abra avoid some of the mistakes passed on from father to son for generations in his family. One of those things is alcohol abuse. Yep. And there is a perhaps a genetic aspect to the, the addictive nature or the addiction that Jack had, that Dan has, that Dan's grandfather had, that maybe Abra has. So with a little bit of guidance and support and experience and patience, maybe Dan can help Abra avoid some of those pitfalls in in life as she gets older. Yeah, you could see that he really sees his role as becoming a mentor to her Mm -hmm. and helping her through that about things that maybe she can't talk about with her parents because they wouldn't understand. And him serving as an actual uncle, now that we know his relationship to them gives her that ability to talk to him in a way that she might not with her parents. And then because of their shared experience, he's able to do that. And so hopefully that will end up breaking the wheel. Another thing that seems to have traveled from generation to generation is the is, is their temper. Jack's father had a horrible temper and we learned all about how he would physically abuse his entire family. Jack had a really bad temper and he would go into these like blackouts and just beat people up including his own student, and he broke his son's arm. Dan does the same thing, and we see that Abra, even as a young girl, has these fits of, I will destroy you kind of expression. Yeah. And it scares Dan a lot of times, and he worries that once unleashed, her rage might hurt a lot of people, especially with all of the power she has. We've talked about this in previous episodes, that Abra... Unlike Dan and every other generation before him in the Torrance line, has a like a supportive, loving family that maybe Abra won't end up like all of her previous ancestors. Right. You know, just to restate the obvious, the whole way that Dan and Abra are able to defeat the true knot is through this switching of bodies, which the way that they mentally envision it is that they're on a wheel mm. that's going around almost almost like a lazy Susan, right? Where one's on one end and the other's on the other and you spin it around so that they've switched places. And that is sort of this whole idea put into into image and actuality here as a way of getting that because they need to get to where they need to be at the right place and at the right time. And so and the only thing that that wheel's job is to do is to turn to get them in the right place. But For them to succeed, they need to get back to where they were. Otherwise, she's going to be stuck in his body and die, or he's going to be stuck in her body and have a lot of explaining to do to the parents. (laughs) (laughs) We hinted at this, Jay, a little bit, but it's really been a big theme for the entire book is this idea of recovery and redemption. Mm. And this book ends in talking about both of these, both in the climax with a true knot, but then also what has happened with Danny at the end. So I thought we could spend some time talking about this because I do think that this is really maybe the impetus for why 
King wrote this book and really what made him attracted to writing this story, not just to, hey, what happened to that kid, but more more importantly, what we were just talking about with how how breaking the wheel is important. Mm-hmm. I think that it's best defined in this line that King writes, the past is gone, even though it defines the present. And it's this idea that everything about you, about your life and situation brings you to this moment and you can't avoid that. All those things, whether it's your family, your experiences, all of that defines who you are, but that's gone and you can never get that back. So what do you do going forward? And I think that that's the piece that is really how Dan breaks the wheel because we saw with Jack in The Shining that he was always looking backwards. Mm-hmm. We talked about the um, Overlookania, right? Is that how we pronounced it? Overlookiana? Overlookiana, in which Jack was just losing himself for hours at a time in the minutia of the Overlook Hotel, whether that be receipts or scrapbooks or other pieces of paper and articles. And he was losing the present by losing himself in the past. And and he was avoiding that. And he thought he could perhaps live forever by getting into those details in the past. And Dan seems to want to move on. And we see at the beginning of the book that the way he does this is by literally drowning himself in alcohol. Mm-hmm. The only way that he can manage and survive is by always being drunk and putting all of that past memory away from him. And it gets to this point where his mother dies. He has no relationship with Dick Halloran anymore. And he's trying to avoid all those things in the past. And this book is really about all that catching up with him. And in a literal sense, like some more examples of this is that the Overlook Hotel is gone, but its ghosts still haunt. They, they still haunt Dan. They still haunt the world. And at the end of the story, Dan uses them as weapons. Yep. They even haunt members of the True Knot. In addition to that, the ghost of Jack is at the Overlook location. And he's there. And he's there just long enough and in just enough of a semi-physical way to help. But then he's gone. He fades away. Yep. There are these things from the past, the Overlook Hotel, the ghosts from the hotel, the ghost of Jack. They're from the past, but now they're gone because the past is gone. It should be gone and it should stay gone. And if you get sucked into the past, you might end up like Jack did. Right. And ultimately, it's interesting because all of those things are necessary for Dan to be able to, with Aber's help, defeat the true knot. Aber would not have been able to defeat them on her own, except for Dan's help. And as you said, Dan has to pull on these ghosts. He has to pull on his dead father. And it's all these things that get them to where they need to be. But then he is also able to leave that in the past. Literally, when Dan is trying to get off the mountain with Billy Freeman, he looks back to where his he did see the ghost of his father and his father's gone at that point, right? Mm-hmm. He's no longer there, so he he's left him in the past. And then we get this epilogue where Dan needs to confront his lowest point as an alcoholic. And that lowest point is when he left Deanie and her son in that apartment. Yep. And it's this thing that has haunted him, right? He didn't we we talked about before how he spilled his guts to the doctor 
about everything that happened at the Overlook, but he wouldn't mention this thing that happened with Deanie. And so finally, when he gets his 15-year chip for being sober for 15 years in front of all the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, he finally tells this story, which is his low point, and he expects it to be this weight off of his shoulders. And I can't believe I'm telling this to you people, but I have to do it to get over the past. And ultimately, nobody cares, right? They're all like, mm-hmm. I just want to get to the pizza and chips, all right? I've heard of plenty of these stories. They're all pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just get to the good stuff. Yeah. They care that he has unburdened himself, but they don't care about the thing that he did. And they certainly don't spend any energy judging him for it because his immediate realization is there are people looking around like, that sounds like last Tuesday to me. (laughs) You know, uh, what are you talking about? I've done far worse things to people who I actually knew and cared about. It does make Dan's, like his guilt maybe was far larger than the act that inspired it, but it wasn't a great thing that he did. I think he was justified in feeling terrible about what he did to Dini, but once he did share, it really did change his outlook on life, I think, because he realized that that was the last thing, that was the last part of his past that he wouldn't let go, and now he really and truly can move forward. Yep. And I think that's an important thing to, to mention here while we're talking about recovery. And that's that Dan, in that moment, has achieved a full recovery. He's still an alcoholic. He'll always be an alcoholic, but he's a recovered alcoholic. Mm -hmm. The moment that the ghost of his father shows up and helps win the day against the true knot and then vanishes, I kind of see that as a, a redemption for Jack. Yeah. I know that Jack was never deliberately evil. I know that he was a a man who was fighting his own demons and then had to fight demons that were added to that mix when he went to the Overlook with his family. And he lost that fight because it was just too much. Uh, And he did a lot of terrible things because of it. But I think that by the time we reached the end of the, The Shining, he was ready to be redeemed, but didn't have an opportunity because he died. And in doing what he did at the end of Dr. Sleep, I think he does get the redemption that he he missed out on. Yep. I would agree with that. And there's a an afterword to this book in which King talks about what was the impetus for writing it. Mm-hmm. And he says he was wondering after somebody had asked him like, hey, whatever happened to that kid in The Shining? And he thought about it some. And one of the things that got him to write this book was to say, what would have happened to Danny's troubled father if he had found Alcoholics Anonymous? And it's to that point that you're saying, right? Jack didn't have this tool to help him, but Dan does and realizes it. Yeah. It's not only Alcoholics Anonymous itself, but also the the whole community that we've talked about, right? He's got friends, he's got family, he's got this whole town that is sort of behind him and wanting him to succeed. Jay, we've reached the end of the book and it's our last chance to find any Dark Tower thinnies. Well, as we said earlier in the episode, when we were talking about how life is a wheel, Mm. that is certainly a throwback, callback, connection to the Dark Tower in general, because we all know that Ka is a wheel. Yes. And in addition to the line that you quoted earlier, there's another line when Dan says that Abra will be safe enough. There's a wheel. I don't know how to explain it any better than that. Mm. Dan's basically trusting in fate. Yes. 
and alluding to fate having some attribute of wheels. And so fate and wheels, let's just, let's just call it Ka yep. and be done with it then here. When we're getting to the climax, Rose has a backup plan with one of the remaining loyal members of the True Knot, and that is a woman named Sari, who was Andy's lover. So she's out for revenge as well. Mm -hmm. She would love to get the girl who uh, was responsible for her lover's death. And we learn late in the book that Sari's talent was to be dim. Ooh. Quote, she wasn't capable of invisibility. None of them was. But she could create a kind of dimness that went very well with her unremarkable face and figure. And if that doesn't describe the low men, I don't know what does. Or even Walter O. Dim himself. That's true as well. Of course, it doesn't really work and she gets seen anyways and is not a problem for Dan and Aber to take care of. Well, that's because the ghost of one Mr. Horace DeWent apparently can see her no matter what. That's true. Any other thinnies, Jay? I have one more. I thought it was really interesting that in the closing remarks of the book, King thanks various people and then thanks us, his constant readers, with May you have long days and pleasant nights. Ah, uh, look at him. Yeah. Very nice, King. We mentioned earlier about how Abra has a temper, and one of the ways that she lets this temper go is when she gets in trouble with her parents. She has this freak out and breaks all the china plates that are in the hutch, hutch cabinet, some sort of display case. And it made me wonder if Abra has broken all the four special plates, much like Detta did way back when. Oh, well, I, I bet they were pretty four special. Her parents were upset, so yes. With the last of the Dark Tower thinnies, I think it's time to talk about some yucking it ups. A big part of Dan's plan is that he takes in. Chetta's sickness, the cancer that's got her, and he brings it within himself. And we're sort of foreshadowed this by all the, the talk of how much pain he's in and how he looks bad and he can't eat. And at one point, we find out that Dan had a growing heat in his midsection. It felt as though there were a rat on fire in there, one that kept chewing at him even as it burned. Ugh. Yikes. And I thought this was a really cool thing that King did. He was sort of repeating a little bit of what John Coffey's power mm. was in, in The Green Mile. What comes out of John Coffey after he ingests somebody's illness or even death, in the case of Mr. Jingles, King describes that as like tiny little gnats or something. Right. And here it's steam. But tomato, tomato, it's sort of the same thing, right? Yeah. It's a different type of steam though, right? Like it's not the kind that the true knots used to ingesting to get power. It's this this red steam that is more sick that they can't ingest that immediately sort of kills them. Apparently it's capable of ca carrying disease because that's how they got the measles or That's right. And now this is how they're getting cancer cuz that's Jack's uh yeah, secret weapon. He gives everybody in the true knot cancer. And their immune system's already uh, lessened by the measles, so it doesn't take long to do them in. Yeah. How about you? What yucking it up do you have? As I mentioned earlier, Horace DeWent shows up. Mm. So my yucking it up is 
the description of good old Mr. DeWent. His smiling, predatory face was the damp, whitish green of a spoiled avocado. His eyes seemed to almost dangle from their sockets. Great party, isn't it? He said, and as he grinned, his lips split open. Yikes. I don't know what's worse. The split lips or the spoiled avocado? Uh, as somebody who can't survive without chapstick, it's the split lips for me. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, including this month, our discussion of the movie Dr. Sleep. Head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to become a patron and get access to our Dr. Sleep, the movie coverage. Okay, as we like to do sometimes, Jay, when we get to the end of the book, let's talk about uh, some reviews that came out and our final thoughts. And we'll start with a review in the New York Times by Margaret Atwood of The Handmaid's Tale fame, amongst other things. And uh, surprise, surprise, she liked it. Yeah, let's just leave it there. Yeah, good stuff. I also found some other ones that have some interest. And Bookless said, King, not one given to sequels, throws fans a big bloody bone with this long drooled for follow-up to The Shining. Though the book is very poignantly bookended, the battle between Dan Abra and the True's Queen Bitch of Castle Hell is relegated to a psychic slugfest. Not really the stuff of high tension. Regardless, seeing phrases like red rum and officious prick and print again is pretty much worth the asking price. <laughs> Uh, this reviewer, all all they needed to see was a fish's prick and they're a happy person. <laughs> Publishers Weekly said, less terrifying than its famous predecessor, perhaps because of the author's obvious affection for even the most repellent characters, King's latest is still a gripping taut read that provides a satisfying conclusion to Danny Torrance's story. It's an interesting point about his affection for even these repellent characters. It's like Rose the Hat is supposed to be this, the worst of the worst, but she still kind of comes across as like, I, I bet she'd be pretty cool to hang out with, uh -huh. right? Yeah, absolutely. It it does seem like if you had your own RV and you could hang out with these folks for a while, it might be a- Might be fun time. Yeah, not yeah. be a bad, bad gig for a while. Library Journal said, this is Vintage King, a classic good versus evil tale that will keep readers turning the pages late into the night. His many fans won't be disappointed. I can totally concur with turning pages late into the night. That's pretty much how I read this book. And then this last one, Jay, I think you'll really appreciate. Kirkus says, King clearly revels in his tale, and though it's quite a bit more understated than his earlier booze-soaked work, it shows all his old gifts, including the ability to produce sentences that read as if they're tossed off, but that could come only from someone who's worked hard on them. Do you think I'll like what they have to say because I agree with that statement, or because in the one sentence, they said both tossed off and worked hard. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I figured you'd appreciate <laughs> that. But I thought that last point about, I don't think that King gets the recognition that you especially think he deserves yeah. for what a, a craftsman is. And so, you know, when he's, when the, this reviewer says that as someone who's worked hard on them, I, I think that that's something that King doesn't get credit for. Mm -hmm. And we've talked both in, I think, bonus episodes and on the podcast about how King doesn't, maybe in the past he has, but he spends a lot of time on his drafts and his rewrites. And the lines that he puts in are crafted 
with a reason and he is saying what he means to say and there's a purpose behind them and he's not just slapping words on paper to get to the end of the story. Yeah. I think that a lot of people just have this mental image of King spending a couple of decades with a giant Scarface-sized pile of cocaine on his desk and just madly typing and never looking back at a single word that he wrote. And some of that's not wrong, but I think that for the most part, he works really hard at what he does. Yep. He's a prolific writer, which means he works he works a lot and he just puts a lot on on the page far faster than a lot of other authors. But as you said, if you look at any of his revisions, you'll see how how they progress from raw idea to finished product. And the finished product is always way better and definitely different. Yeah. No matter how many times you toss off. <laughs> oh my. What are your thoughts on this book as we come to an end, Jay? Overall, it's a very fun read, well-constructed, and a great sequel. I give it 4.1 top hats out of five. Very good. I give it four top hats. I thought that this was a solid book and a good read. I will say, and I think I've mentioned this before, is that the, the one piece that was maybe lacking for me is that I never felt that Abra and Dan were in any great danger. They seemed way more powerful than the bad guys and smarter than the bad guys and better equipped to deal with them. And so I never got the sense that there was any real danger that King was going to kill off either one of them. And as such, maybe the tension wasn't there like it could have been. But as you said, it's very well constructed and it was such a good read. And um, King put this book together very nicely. So four top hats for me. I think I would have given it a little bit higher score if like maybe the good guys had had to suffer a little bit more to win the day. Mm. Not that I wanted the guy to die, but maybe if they killed Billy or something, right? Yeah. But everybody, everybody came through. Except for poor baseball boy. Well, he was sort of dead to, from the start, right? It's time for some fun stuff. What you got, Jay? Fun stuff? We're already having a lot of fun. So this is perfectly timed. I'll just call out this one thing. Even though I haven't seen the movie yet, I know that Ewan McGregor plays Dan in the movie. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers for the trailer. <laughs> and at one point, Rose the Hat says to Dan, but I have the high ground, dear, in all sorts of ways. Mm. And I couldn't help but laugh because Obi-Wan says that he has the high ground to Anakin right before he chops off three of his limbs. Actually, he might have chopped off all four, but one of them had already been chopped off. So he's chopping off a mechanical one, but... Fair enough. I can't remember. But at least three. Yes. And then leaves him to die, burning to death. So, high ground. I suppose he also has the moral ground as well by, by not killing Darth Vader. Very... Very good of of Obi-Wan to not give in to the dark side of the force. And instead of killing Anakin, he just leaves him dismembered, burning. Yeah, I guess that's better. <laughs> yeah, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> oh, right, right. Like many of King's stories, Dan and Billy are heading west for their final confrontation. And this seems to be uh, a theme in a, in a number of uh, King's stories and going west. And it happens in The Shining where... 
Jack goes west, but it also happens here where Dan and Billy go west, and it happens in the stand, and it happens in Children of the Corn. There's all these people going west. Desperation. Yeah. Yeah, it must be something that rings true for King. It's not just about going west to discover the frontier or escape your past. It's uh, it's to face down evil. Yeah. In one final stand. Hmm. Hey, somebody should do something with that. Maybe write an incredibly long book. All right. So uh, we pretty much enjoyed um, Dr. Sleep. And uh, what else have we been enjoying lately, Jay? What you got? I have been, I'm not sure which tense to use at this point, because at, at this point I have finished all of, I'll just say the title, For All Mankind. It's so good. Mm-hmm. There are three seasons out. It's been renewed for at least one more season. I don't know when that actually will air. For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus stars Joel Kinnaman and Chantel Van Setten. And it's an alternative history science fiction show that posits two things. One, that the Russians land on the moon before the Americans. Okay. And that the space race never ends. Mm. And it just goes from there. So it's live action. It's not like Star Trek-y type of science fiction or, or, or that kind of thing where everything is just, there's like technology that solves every problem. It starts off in the 60s. The, there are the Apollo missions. There are failures and successes, things like that. American astronauts all driving Corvettes. You know, the astronauts' wives getting interviewed by the news crews, all that stuff is in the show. And they make it so amazingly interesting because they change just a couple of things and let the ripple effect carry the whole story forward. Mm. It's just fantastic to see what if we didn't just get to the moon and stop? What if we kept going back? And I'll leave it there. But I cannot recommend this show highly enough. It is just really really good i have already put it on my list from you and i talking about it before and i am excited about it because if there's two things i love it's alternative history and space race slash science fiction so i'm sure it's gonna be in my wheelhouse oh yeah you'll love it all right my other worlds in these is that i watched recently the movie the northman directed by robert eggers which came out earlier this year in 2022 he also directed the witch and the lighthouse and the northman is a loose retelling of Hamlet with a young Nordic person whose father is killed and the killer remarries his father's wife. And that is Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawke play the mother and the father. He runs away to escape being killed himself and fakes his death. And so they think he's dead, but he goes off to Russia or Poland or some Slavic country and turns into this barbarian rough person who then goes back to seek his revenge mm. on the man who killed his father. If you've seen The Lighthouse, you know that Robert Eggers has a very distinctive style, sort of playing with folklore, but also having these weird visions that happen and it was a it was a good watch and uh, i haven't watched too many 
I was going to say something original in a long time. You know, most of what I watch is based on existing IP. I guess you could say that this is based on existing IP. It just so happens that <laughs> an existing IP is a 400-year-old play, but takes it its own direction. But I think you'll enjoy The Northman by Robert Eggers. According to my Googling, it stars Alexander Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy, and York. Yes, uh, Alexander Skarsgård is fantastic. Anna Taylor-Joy, who I've enjoyed in The Queen's Gambit, amongst other things, is very good in it. And if you think Bjork plays some weird character who says some weird things, you would be exactly right. That's exactly the person Bjork plays. I'm not sure if she's acting or not, or if she's just playing herself and didn't realize she was in a... She didn't realize she was in a movie? A period piece, yeah. (laughs) She only has a couple scenes, but they're good. Anyhow, that's The Northman by Robert Eggers. Very good. I got to check that out. Cool. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Jay, this is exciting. On our next episode, we are going to start reading the dead zone oh yeah i am so excited it's gonna be so good yes it is so we'll be covering the prologue and chapters one through five for jay russo i'm sean mcgurr thanks for listening Isn't that also McCartney? <laughs> that was George Harrison. Oh, that's Harrison. Yeah, they're all the same. Yeah, they're all <laughs> they're all pretty much the same. The Beatles are interchangeable in my mind. Heresy. Harrison. It's pronounced Harrison. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. It's not heresy. <laughs> Dooby doo, it's George Harrison. <laughs>